And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles in hand as we dive into Revelation chapter 2. In just a few moments, uh, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, as we continue our message series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. This morning, we're going to take a closer look at the third of the seven churches of Revelation, the church at Pergamum. If the city of Ephesus was kind of like the New York City of the Roman Empire and the city of Smyrna was like the Acapulco or Puerto Vallarta of the Roman Empire, then the city of Pergamum was kind of a hybrid city. It was kind of a combination of Washington, D.C. and Berkeley and Woodstock. It was kind of a mishmash combination of all three. Let me explain. Uh, Pergamum was located about 55 miles north of that second city we looked at last week, the city of Smyrna. And unlike those two prior cities we looked at, the city of Ephesus and the city of Smyrna, Uh, Pergamum was not a coastal city. Uh, It was located about 15 miles inland uh, from the sea, and it was perched on top of a hill that rose steeply about a thousand feet above the valley below. It was the capital city of the province of Asia for more than 300 years. That's why it was kind of like our Washington, D.C. It had been the capital city of the province of Asia for more than 300 years. They even had their Supreme Court located there in the city of Pergamum. The Greek word Pergamum actually means elevated or citadel. For centuries, Pergamum was used by the Greeks as a walled fortress, and they bragged about it being impregnable. But Pergamum was similar to Berkeley because it was also an education center. Pergamum was famous for its massive library. In fact, it was the second biggest library in the world in its day. It was only second to that great library in Alexandria, Egypt. This library at Pergamum was so large, at one point it had 200,000 books. Now, that's a remarkably large number, especially considering the fact that every single one of those books was handwritten. Remember, they didn't have a printing press back then. So imagine a library with 200,000 handwritten books. So Pergamum was a very important city in Asia Minor. It was important politically. It was important culturally. But what stood out most about Pergamum was the fact that it was a center for some pretty insane forms of pagan worship. Uh, Things that included uh, like hallucinogens and orgies. And channeling even evil spirits and even in worship of one of their gods, they would when they had this sedative or hallucinogen, they would lay down and sleep at night and have snakes crawl all over them. There was some weird, wacky pagan worship going on in this city. Uh, The citizens of Pergamum, for starters, considered it their patriotic duty to worship the Roman emperor, much like those citizens of Smyrna that we looked at last week. They believed they needed to worship the Roman emperor, and Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to be given permission from Rome to build a temple dedicated to emperor worship. And by the time John came onto the scene, Pergamum had three different temples within city limits dedicated to three different Roman emperors. Pergamum also had temples for the worship of Dionysus and Athena 
and Asclepius, the god of healing, and the chief Greek god, Zeus. And Zeus's altar in Pergamum was so massive and so ornately sculpted and decorated that it was declared to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so if you look at this picture on the screen here, that backdrop doesn't look quite right for the city of Pergamum, does it? And that's because in the late 1800s, that altar to Zeus was disassembled piece by piece and shipped over to... Berlin, Germany, (laughs) reassembled in Berlin. So even today, you could go to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin and see the altar to Zeus. It was massive. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So all that to say, in John's day, Pergamum was a very important city. It was important politically. It was important culturally. And it was important religiously. And beginning in verse 12 of Revelation 2, here is what Jesus says to the Christians there in Pergamum. I encourage you to have your Bibles handy and follow along. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. May Christ bless us as we read and study his letter to the churches today. Well, in the first verse of each of Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, he addresses the messenger of that church. Remember, that's what that word angel means. It means messenger. And then Jesus, in each of these seven letters, identifies himself most often by one of the titles or descriptions that was given of him back in chapter one. So now, since your Bibles are are still open, I'd like you to, to notice how Jesus identifies himself to the first two churches in Revelation chapter two. So look back at how Jesus identifies himself to the Ephesian Christians in verse one of chapter two. He says there in verse one, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Translation, these are the words of the son of God who holds the church leaders in his right hand and is actively moving and working among his churches. That's an encouraging introduction, isn't it? That's an encouraging way to identify himself. Now, look at how Jesus identifies himself to the Christians in the second church, the church at Smyrna. Look at verse eight. Jesus says, these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. Translation, 
These are the words of the eternal God who conquered death, blazing a trail for you to conquer death as well. Wouldn't you agree that's also an encouraging way for Jesus to begin a letter to a church? Now, look at how Jesus identifies himself to the Pergamum Christians in verse 12 of chapter 2. He writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Translation, These are the words of the one who judges men's eternal souls. Nothing gets past me. It has kind of a different vibe to it, doesn't it? Than those first two introductions did. The introduction to Ephesus and the introduction to the Christians in Smyrna. This one has a different feel to it. It it kind of has this foreboding sense to it. You get the impression that Jesus is about to lower the boom. And in fact, just two verses later, he does lower the boom. Remember from our study of Revelation 1 that Jesus' double-edged sword symbolizes his keen and accurate judgment upon men's souls. Jesus alone has both the wisdom and the authority to judge us because he alone knows us inside and out. Amen? There's no one else in the universe except for God and, of course, the Son of God who knows us inside and out. As Jesus' letter to the Pergamum Christians unfolds, I, I want you to keep a few scriptures in mind. First of all, I want you to keep Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 in mind. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. You recognize this verse, don't you? God's word penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is such an important passage of Scripture. Remember that according to John 1.1, Jesus is the Word of God. So you fuse that insight from John 1.1 with what we read here in Hebrews 12, excuse me, Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. And this is what we walk away with. Jesus Himself is living and active. Jesus Himself is sharper than any double-edged sword. He penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from Jesus' sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the Son of God, to whom we must all give account. The Pergamum Christians might have thought that they could get away with certain sins, But Jesus reminds them, no, you can't. (laughs) No, you won't. You're not going to get away with anything because I see everything. I know everything, everything you say, everything you do, even every mode of your of your heart is uncovered and laid bare before me. And you will be held accountable for all of it. The second scripture to keep in mind is first Peter 417, where The Apostle Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The first part of this verse is especially important. Look at it again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Let those words sink in. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. 
It is time for judgment to begin with God's family. In other words, it's time for judgment to begin with the church. God will judge non-Christians for their sin, but he will first judge Christians. Never forget that. God will judge Christians first. Now, why is that? Well, there are a few reasons. Let me give you a couple of them. For starters, God holds Christians to a higher standard than he holds non-Christians to, doesn't he? He expects more of us. To the one who he has given much, much will be required. The second reason God judges us first is because God is counting on us to impact our world for Jesus Christ. Amen? He's counting on us to impact our world, to share the gospel. And a corrupt church, a sinning church, a compromising church will have precious little impact on our world. And so God holds us to a higher standard because we have been given the highest mission on earth to go into all the world and make followers of Jesus, disciples of all nations. And we cannot do that with any level of effectiveness if we're drenched in sin and we're compromising as a church. You see, that kind of church that will transform lives is the kind of church that is pure and holy. The kind of church that makes an impact in this world is the church that is set apart and does not compromise. That's the kind of church that will make an impact, and that's the kind of church that Jesus deserves. Now, with all that in mind, let's take a closer look at the next few verses. As Jesus addresses the Christians in Pergamum here in Revelation 2, he follows the same basic outline that he follows in his messages to most of the seven churches. He starts by giving them some praises, praising them for things they've done well. Secondly, he rebukes them for things they've done not so well. And then finally, he makes them some promises. And so he praises them. He rebukes them, and then he gives them some promises. Let's look at the praise he gives them in verse 13. Once again, Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Notice he starts this verse and he ends this verse talking about Satan. And so I'm pretty sure Jesus is trying to tell us something here. Uh, Satan is in that city. He's alive and well and working in that city. Remember back in verse 9 when Jesus was giving that short little letter to the church at Smyrna? He said that the Jews that are coming after you in the city of Smyrna are actually a synagogue of Satan. In other words, those Jews in Smyrna... They thought they were doing God's work, but in actuality, they were doing the devil's work. So there was, in effect, a synagogue of Satan in Smyrna. But here in Pergamum, Jesus says Satan lives and Satan has his throne in your city. Uh, That's a big step beyond simply having a synagogue of Satan located in your city. This word throne is a really interesting word. It's a translation of a Greek word that was used of the of the chair that was the main chair of the master of a house. And so uh, let me ask you this. Uh, Some of you are the heads of your home. Do you have a certain chair in your family room or living room that everyone in the house knows it's your chair? 
You know, it's that chair you always sit in. It's your favorite chair. And whenever you step into the room, if someone else is sitting in that chair, they know they better get up really fast because you're coming and that's your chair. They better move and let you sit there, right? That's daddy's chair. That's mama's chair. Some of us have that kind of chair in our home. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Satan's favorite chair, his chair, as master of the house, is located, he says, right there in your city, the city of Pergamum. Jesus is saying that Satan felt at home in Pergamum. His favorite chair was in Pergamum. It was his turf, and he was master of that town. Yet despite that reality, Jesus praises these Pergamum Christians for remaining true to his name, They didn't recant their faith in Jesus, even when one of their own men, even one of their own brothers in Christ, Antipas, who Jesus calls my faithful witness, even when he was put to death there in their city. Now, who was Antipas? We can only hazard a guess. It was most likely the pastor of the church there in Pergamum. He most likely was a pastor, and every year as they had these temples dedicated to emperor worship, every year they required every citizen of Pergamum to offer incense to the emperor and say these words, Kurios Kaiseros, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians in good conscience couldn't say that, could they? They could only say in good conscience, Kurios Christos, Jesus is Lord. So in all likelihood, at one of these annual festivals to the Roman emperor, when everyone in town is bowing their knee to the emperor, offering him incense and saying, Kurios Kaiseros, in all likelihood, Antipas said, I won't do it. He is the pastor of the church, refused to bow a knee to the Caesar. He refused to confess the Caesar is Lord. He refused to offer him incense. And so he was martyred for his faith. Now, historians can't verify this, but many believe that Antipas was killed inside a bronze bull. At Zeus's temple in Pergamum, there evidently was a life-size bull sculpted out of bronze. It was hollow. It had a trap door in the side. And that trap door could be locked from the outside. And so several centuries earlier, a Greek inventor had invented this life-size hollow brass bowl as a torture device. And so here's how it went down. The criminal would have his hands and his feet tied. The trap door would be opened and that criminal would be thrown inside that brass bowl. That trap door would then be closed and locked from the outside as they would light a fire underneath that brass bowl. And so what would happen is that criminal would slowly be roasted to death inside that bowl. But that wasn't creative and cruel enough for the man who invented this torture device. So what he did was install into this brass bowl a series of horns and pipes that would have as their exit right there at the mouth of that brass bowl. And so when that criminal was inside that locked brass bowl and the flames began to get hotter and hotter, he would begin to moan and scream. And those horns and pipes were devised in such a way it would alter his screams and make them sound more like the bellowing of a cow. 
And so the crowds would gather around the brass bowl to see it shake back and forth on the platform as that man struggled to try to extricate himself from that torture device. And they would see the smoke coming out of the nostrils of that bowl. And they would hear the bellowing of that bowl, which actually began as screams of agony from the criminal trapped inside. As best we can guess, this servant in the church of Pergamum, Antipas, was there at the Zeus temple and he was tortured inside that brass bowl, roasted to death. What a cruel and wicked world we live in. So Jesus commends the Pergamum Christians for refusing to deny his name, even when one of their church members, most likely their pastor, was roasted to death. That would have been an easy time for them to cry uncle and deny Christ. But Jesus commends them because they didn't deny Christ. They were willing to be tortured and martyred for the name of Christ. And for that, Jesus praises them. Well, next, Jesus gets into his rebuke. He spends a little bit longer on this in verses 14 through 16. And it's clear from what Jesus says in these three verses that not everyone in the Pergamum church was remaining faithful to Christ. After praising the Pergamum Christians in verse 13, Jesus rebukes them for two things in verses 14 through 16. The first rebuke I want you to see for yourself there in verse 14. Jesus says, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So who was Balaam? Well, some of you may remember Balaam as the guy who had a talking donkey in the Old Testament. <laughs> That's true. Balaam is the guy with the talking donkey, but his story is much bigger than having a donkey who on one occasion at least talked to him. He was a prophet, a pagan prophet and an enchanter and a sorcerer that we can read about over in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Balaam was this pagan prophet and sorcerer who believed in God and to some extent worshipped and obeyed God. When Moses and the Israelites were nearing the end of their 40-year journey uh, through the wilderness into their promised land, as they got to the end of that journey, they were camped in this valley, the Jordan River Valley, on the east side of the Jordan. On the other side of that Jordan River was the city of Jericho, which would be the first big city they conquer. But as they're there in that valley, that Jordan River Valley, King Balak, king of Moab, was shaking in his sandals. He had heard the horror stories of how the Israelite army had obliterated armies along the way that had challenged them and tried to fight them. So Balak knew that if he took his army to fight the Israelite army, he would lose and he would lose big. And so he hires, Balak does, the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. Balaam figured that if the Israelites were cursed by God, his own army could stand a chance of winning a battle against them. And so here's a, a quick little image of Balaam. You may remember what happened. So King Balak brings Balaam up on a mountainside where he can overlook and see a large part of the Israelite camp down in the valley below. And he asks Balaam to curse those Israelites. But what does he do instead? 
Balaam asks God, hey, is it okay for me to curse the Israelites? And says, no. God says, no, I want you to bless them instead. And so instead of cursing them, Balaam blesses them. He does this once. He does this twice. He does it three times. He even does it four times. Four times instead of blessing, instead of cursing them, he ends up blessing them. And so as we get to the end of Numbers chapter 24, we have the impression that Balaam is a pretty decent follower of God, a a pretty upstanding guy. But in the very next chapter, in chapter 25, we read that the Israelites have these Moabite women coming into their camp and leading them into sexual sin, leading them into orgies, leading them into the worship and and eating of meat sacrifice to idols. And so we have this quick turnaround and we wonder what happened. Well, a few chapters later in Numbers 31, verse 16, it makes it clear that it was Balaam's idea to ask the king of Moab, Balak, to get together his best looking, most promiscuous women who were the best seductresses in his entire kingdom and send them down into the Israelite camp to tempt those Israelite men to have sexual sin with them and to worship their false idols. And so basically Balaam said, you know what? God is not giving me permission to curse the Israelites, but you can get God to curse them by taking a backdoor approach. If you get the Israelites to compromise and to commit moral sin, God will curse them. And that's exactly what happens. God sends a curse, in a sense, uh, upon the people of Israel, and thousands of them die as a result of it. So, from that point on in Scripture, Balaam's name becomes synonymous with moral compromise. Jesus tells the Pergamum Christians in Revelation 2.14, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. In essence, Jesus is saying, Christians in Pergamum, although you stood strong against threats and attacks coming from the outside, you've started to give in to moral compromise inside your church. You have certain members of your church who say it's okay to offer incense to Caesar and say it's okay to visit the local pagan temples and say it's okay to lower your sexual standards, but it's not okay. I have called you to a higher standard, so I expect you to raise your moral standards, not lower them. That's in essence what Jesus is saying here. And in verse 15, Jesus rebukes the Pergamum Christians for allowing some of their church members to hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We spoke about the Nicolaitans a couple weeks ago as we addressed the Christians in Ephesus. Who were the Nicolaitans? Well, they're not mentioned outside of Revelation, so we can't be absolutely certain. But since that word Nicolaitans means conquerors of the people, we're pretty sure as we look at the context here, the church at Ephesus as well as the church here at Pergamum, that the Nicolaitans were somehow convincing some of the younger Christians in the church to compromise morally. And they were convincing them somehow to let that let down their guard as far as uh, moral and as, what I should say is let down their guard as far as doctrinal soundness goes as well. In one way or another, the Nicolaitans were infiltrating the church, convincing young, impressionable Christians to be soft in their convictions and to be soft when it came to sin. So together, the Balaam followers and the Nicolaitans and the Pergamum church were corrupting their church. The church was in the world and the church was becoming more and more of the world. 
The church was supposed to be holy and separate and distinct from their sinful culture where Satan had his throne. But as the weeks passed, they were becoming more and more indistinguishable from the sinful culture that they lived in. And Jesus says loud and clear, it's not enough to just stand strong against the soldiers from the outside. You must also stand strong against the compromising Christians on the inside. You have to stand strong against carnal Christians who are lying to get you into bed with them, trying to get you into bed with them. You have to stand strong against lukewarm Christians who are trying to get you to drink this or smoke that. You have to stand strong against Christians who live like the devil outside the church building and are trying to get you to live like the devil as well. They want you to be like them, to live lives that are indistinguishable from the world around you. And Jesus says in verse 16, repent, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Translation, if the compromisers in your church don't repent of their sin, Jesus will come and judge them because judgment begins with the house of God. Never forget that. Judgment begins with the house of God. Well, in verse 17, Jesus makes two promises to the Christians in the church at Pergamum. In verse 13, he had praised them for standing strong against persecutors from the outside. In verses 14 through 16, he rebuked them for having individuals in their congregation that fell into moral compromise following the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here in verse 17, he makes them two promises. Promise number one, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, you probably remember that manna from the wilderness wanderings of Moses and the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt and traveling for 40 years through the wilderness. God got to a point early on in that journey that he gave them manna every single morning bread from heaven, to feed them for the day. And so that manna from heaven, Jesus is keeping that in mind here. And at the same time, I think he's also kind of alluding to something he said earlier in verse 14. Remember in verse 14, he talked about food sacrificed to idols. And so I believe that Jesus is saying here, Christians in Pergamum, If you overcome the temptation to eat the bread of sin, Jesus will bless you with the bread of life. Amen. If you overcome the temptation to eat the bread of sin, Jesus will bless you with the bread of life. I think you know that the bread of this world is the bread of death. Everything in this world is going to pass away and everything connected to sin will one day burn. It's a path of death. But Jesus gives us the bread of life that lasts eternally. That's a wonderful promise. Jesus will give his overcomers who follow him faithfully the bread of life. Promise number two. Jesus says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, white stones were given for a variety of reasons in John's day and Let me give you four of those possible reasons that Jesus may have in mind as he says what he says here in verse 17. Reason number one, 
a defendant in John's day would sometimes be given a white stone showing that he was acquitted of his crime. That's pretty good. Secondly, sometimes a servant would be given a white stone to signify that he had been freed from slavery. And as long as he had that white stone in hand, it was a clear token of his freedom. Number three, an athlete was sometimes given a white stone after he won a race or a contest. Finally, a guest, when he was invited to a special event, they didn't print tickets in those days. Sometimes they would give white stones. And that was your ticket to enter that banquet or that special event. As I look at those four, I can't help but wonder if Jesus might have had all four in mind. Jesus is saying to the Christians in Pergamum who are overcoming the temptations to compromise. He's saying, you know what, if if you continue to be faithful and overcome those temptations, I will make sure that you're acquitted of all sin. Don't worry if you overcome and you don't compromise and you're faithful to me to the very end, I will make sure that you're freed from any slavery to sin that you feel. I'll see that you, like an athlete, are going to win that crown of victory. That victor's crown will be yours if you persevere and overcome. And finally, I will make sure that you receive that white stone. In other words, I'll make sure you receive a VIP invitation to live with me forever and ever in paradise. In heaven. Isn't Jesus awesome? Hmm. Catch this little nugget in verse 17. Jesus Christ will give you a brand new name that only you and he know. Isn't that cool? It's right there in verse 17. Jesus will give us a brand new name. In Bible times, names had so much significance. Names defined and described who a person was. And Jesus Christ has a very special name for you that defines and describes who you are to him. Isn't that awesome? Your hard work and your perseverance will pay off in the end. Your refusal to compromise your morals and your integrity will pay off in the end. When you successfully cross the finish line of your Christian race, Jesus will be so proud of you that he'll give you the crown of glory and he will give you a brand new name that only you and he know. Isn't that awesome? Wow. What a mighty God we serve. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being so much better better to us than we are to you. Thank you for your faithfulness to the Christians in Pergamum, despite the challenges they faced. Thank you for loving them enough to rebuke them when they were going down the slippery slope of compromise and didn't even realize it. When they were allowing this poison of compromise to fester and grow in their church and they didn't even realize it. Thank you for your mercy and grace and telling them the truth that they needed to repent. And I pray for that same mercy and grace on me and on each of us, O oh God, who are listening to that, this message today. Lord, have the mercy and grace to shoot straight with us and rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Show us where we're compromising. And Lord, tell us that we need to change and change fast. 
Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand what we have been doing, maybe even private, Lord, maybe in public, I don't know, but open our minds and hearts to understand what we've been doing to go the way of the world, to compromise. And Lord, I pray that you would just renew in our hearts a fervent desire to be in the world, but not of the world. Lord Jesus, help us to be strong, to stand on the word of God. And Lord, no matter what comes at us from the outside, to stand strong. No matter what comes at us from the inside, the church, Lord, help us to stand strong. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is not compromising. Filled with Christians who are not compromising. To bring you honor and glory in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, before service comes to an end, I I want to give you an opportunity to get right with God. It's not complicated to accept Christ. It's hard because we have to put our own lordship aside. We have to climb out of the driver's seat of our lives and start riding shotgun and let Jesus take the wheel. That's not easy, but it's not terribly complicated. I encourage you, if you're ready to accept Christ, Remember these ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and need Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only way to get right with God and to go to heaven someday. And C, choose to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life. If you've made that decision today, we want to hear about it. We want to pray with you. Please reach out to one of our prayer counselors. You can call or text. Their numbers are at the bottom of the screen. If you want just somebody to pray with, they'd love to pray with you. You reach out to one of us if we can be a blessing to you. This is a great day to serve the Lord. This is a great week to serve the Lord. Here we are on the first Sunday of the month of November. And you've got this month ahead of you to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to do that with everything you've got. Stand firm in your faith. Don't compromise. Don't give in to the temptations that come at you from outside. Or even the temptations that may come at you from inside your own home. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in what you believe about Jesus. And morally, stand firm on the truth of God's word. Amen. God bless you. As you trust and love and serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this week. We'll see you next time.